0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now, we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Continue our worship now through study of God's word. Thank you, Brandon. Go and grab your Bibles. Turn to Exodus chapter 15. I've got some volunteers who are gonna be passing out something to you, so everybody needs one of these half sheets of paper, and you'll need a pen if you have one, so the volunteers can go ahead and start passing those out, that would be great. On this form, you'll see four quadrants. It gives you directions, but sometimes it's hard to read directions, so I'm gonna tell you the directions. Um, Inside of each of these quadrants, if you'll just kind of circle, or make a check mark next to the words that you feel like best describes you, then you need to add up how many circles or check marks you have in each quadrant. And then we'll come back to that here in a little bit. So take some time, fill that out. Don't take too much time that you overthink yourself. I know who you are. Uh, Just kind of instinctual, uh, does this word describe me? Check it, circle it, and then you'll get a number at the bottom of of that, Uh, you can fill out that total. And then from there, you just need to know Keep in mind, circle which one is the largest. If you have two of them, because I know there'll be some of you who have two of them and you think you're so unique. That's fine, we'll get to it in a little bit, but you can have two of them. Listen, if you wanna figure out how to have all four the same because you're that kind of person and you wanna cause problems for the system, that's fine. You do you. Uh, but you go ahead and do that, fill out that form, and then we'll come back to that here in the message in just, in just a bit. Let me recap us while we're doing this. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. We're gonna continue this uh, all year long. And so we're in Exodus 15 right now. The people of God, Israelites, Hebrews, sometimes we call them Jews, they are, have been in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. And God has met them, and He sent someone by the name of Moses to go deliver His people from slavery in Egypt. And He sent them back there. Moses actually grew up in Egypt, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, a Hebrew boy who grew up in uh, the palace of Pharaoh, rose to power. Long story short, um, he recognizes his heritage and he ends up killing a, a, an Egyptian slave master, runs to the wilderness for 40 years to hide. And like God does, God calls him back to face the thing that he left. I don't know if you can relate to that, but that's what God does. And so God brought Moses back into Egypt to face Pharaoh. Moses was reluctant and argumentative about what God was asking him to do. Maybe you can relate to that. And God said, listen, that, that's cute. Uh, you're gonna do what I ask you to do. And so he gets, goes back into Egypt. Uh, God performs 10 miraculous signs and wonders. We call them the 10 plagues to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, the 10th of which was the plague of the Passover, the plague of the firstborn, in which if uh, if a home did not rub or spread the blood of a Passover lamb over the doorframe of their house, the angel of death would come and kill the firstborn of that household, including Pharaoh. Uh, The Hebrews did this. They put the blood over their doorposts, and so they then are absolved from that plague And they can set free now into the wilderness. And so they're running. Pharaoh recognizes what's happened. He's led about two million Israelites leave from slavery in Egypt. And so he and his army chase after them and they meet them at the Red Sea. Uh, Really the Sea of Reeds, we call it the Red Sea. And so what happens here is that they're kind of hemmed in and God did this on purpose. He hems them in and he makes them cry out to him. They cry out to God. And so God uses Moses, and Moses, reach out your staff. Moses reaches out his staff, and the Red Sea splits into two, and they walk through on dry land, not muddy land, dry land, and they get to the other side. That's where we pick up today. When they cross over that Red Sea now, uh, their initial response is to sing. And so they sing a song, ironically led by Moses, who months earlier said, I can't even talk too good, and now he's writing songs. This is is the growth of Moses. He's leading his people in worship. Exodus chapter 15. What I want to do this morning, I want to read through these first 21 verses. There's two songs, the song of Moses, then the shorter song of Miriam. I want to look at it from a kind of a holistic Bible perspective. And I want to drive us then to a response, the fitting response to the power of God. On the screen now will be the scriptures I'll use for today. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the Bible. You can read it in context to see it all. So if you wanna write these verses down or take pictures of it, um, that's totally fine. I'd love for you to do that. I would just say, don't come at me saying I said something wrong if you haven't read these yet. That's all I'm saying. And so we're gonna study this here this morning, um, Exodus chapter 15, verses one through 21. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, Yahweh, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, that's Elohim, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord, Yahweh, is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the sea. The floods covered them, they went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, you can underline that, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed, you can underline that, in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil." My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Those are two big superpowers in the Middle East. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and horsemen went to the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, which also makes her the sister of Moses, took a tambourine in her hand, And all the women went out with her, uh, with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We have um, family friends of ours um, who own a restaurant. Well, they don't own the restaurant. Their parents own the restaurant, but they say they own the restaurant. That's a whole other story. Anyway, friends of ours whose parents own the restaurant, and um, they serve the best fried chicken in the south, Um, It's family-style dining. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it's really good. Anyway, uh, but they do not share their recipes, like most places don't. But the chef will give you their recipe, but what he will do is he will leave out one ingredient. So you're free to go home and make that fried chicken if you want to, or make that super minced coleslaw if you want to. You can make their tomatoes and green beans if you want to, but you're going to be missing an ingredient. But you don't know you're missing an ingredient until you go to eat what you've just made feel like it's very, very dark what he does to people. Uh, but you get home, but you recognize, man, just with this one missing element, I don't get the full flavor of the recipe. You know what I mean? Like it's similar, but you're, there's something missing. Now the trick is you don't know what's missing. You have to figure out what you're missing. But if you've watched a lot of cooking shows, I'm sure you're an expert. And so you know exactly what's missing. And so there's something, you know, that has to hit the palate just right. And so I'm sure you can figure it out. We're all brilliant chefs now because of the British Baking Show. But you're, because of the one ingredient missing, you're missing the full flavor of the meal. The Bible is a lot like that. We read the Bible, and we do it in a particular way that feeds our particular desires. But what happens over time is we begin to miss ingredients that give us the full flavor of Scripture. The Bible, Scripture, is called ancient Jewish meditation literature. And that causes problems for almost every one of us in the room today. It's ancient, and most of us are not ancient. We didn't live thousands of years ago. This is rooted in history. It's ancient literature. So it doesn't talk about iPhones and the internet, right? It doesn't, it's ancient. It, it, it is in regard to the things that happened in that time. It's Jewish. It comes from a particular people with a particular ideology and particular traditions and, and habits and beliefs. This is ancient Jewish and it's meditation. And I know we want to pretend the ancient and Jewish part is what trips us up. It's the meditation part that trips us up, particularly in America. We aren't a meditation kind of people. In fact, we make fun of meditation people, don't we? We make fun of people who do yoga with goats. And we should. I think we should. I think that's fine. I'm just saying the idea of sitting in something to marinate in something seems ridiculous to us because it's not efficient. Meditation literature is not efficient. Um, It's not something you can read for 15 minutes in the morning when you're barely awake and then think you've accomplished something. It's not how meditation literature works. Meditation literature needs to be read over and over and over again in different seasons at different times, in different circumstances. The Bible is ancient Jewish meditation literature. So, what happens for us as Southern Americans is that we miss a lot of what's happening, and there are ingredients that we miss. What makes it worse is that the Bible is made up of three main types of this kind of literature. Narrative, discourse, and poetry. So, this collection of books, 66 books, this collection of not even books, but scrolls, this collection of them wasn't written by one author, it was written by 40 authors over the period of a couple thousand years. Yes, God inspired them, God breathed the words, but they wrote it based on their personality, their perspective which can make it feel like it doesn't all fit together, which then makes us feel like we can pick and choose the parts that we wanna read and study. Now, narrative, I think we like narrative. Narrative is a story. It tells us what's going on. Exodus primarily is a narrative. And so we enjoy that. It feels like a movie. It feels like a TV series. It feels like something that we can a little bit more relate to or see happening. Discourse would be things like the letters or the law. Discourse essentially tells us um, what to do with what we just learned. That's what discourse is. We like that too. We like, we like you wanna say you don't, but you like being told what to do. We like just being told black and white, go do this. We don't wanna have to figure it out. The third thing is where a lot of us have an issue and that's poetry. And particularly in the church, we struggle with poetry. And what's happened is that people who are actually drawn to poetry, drawn to the more creative uh, they actually are leaving the church because the church, especially in the South, has been geared towards the narrative discourse people, and we've missed an entire ingredient to the flavor of Scripture. Now, I know there are some in the room this morning who, you are writers, you are readers, and not, not like nonfiction readers or pop fiction readers, you're like, you're like R- Ralph Waldo Emerson kind of readers, people who win Trivial Pursuit, you're those kinds of people. And so for you this morning, this might be something more up your alley. But this here, Exodus chapter 15, is poetry. And what we wanna do is we wanna breeze right through it, but we can't do that with poetry. The Bible is a unified piece of work, which means you cannot read two types of literature and not read the other one. And you can't read poetry like you read narrative. You have to read them and study them differently. So you've got your paper, So it's a quadrant, you'll see this up here, it's just a quadrant. And so you've got your your things marked there, hopefully you've totaled up how many you have in each quadrant. I wanna walk us through a couple of things I think we've been missing overall at the Big C Church about what discipleship actually is. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus has been approached by the scribes, the lawyers of the day, and they're, they're asking him, hey, there's 600 plus Jewish laws, Which one is the most important to you? Which one is the best? Trying to catch him in a lie, catch him as a heretic. And Jesus tells him, well, there's two that are great. But he says this in verse 30 of Mark chapter 12. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things. The word all and the word And. The command, the greatest commandment given by Jesus is to love Yahweh, the Lord our God, with all of our heart, not or, but and, and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. We need to love the Lord holistically with our entire being. But we've bought into some kind of weird lie that you don't have to love him with all your heart if you're really good with your mind. That you don't have to have your emotions stirred if you serve in the church a lot. That's a lie. The command is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all of our strength. So on your quadrant now, it would be labeled this way. Come up here on the screen. Each of those quadrants represents for you, most likely, I know there's no perfect test, most likely how you more naturally show God that you love him. Could be your mind, your soul, your strength, or your heart. So go ahead and label that. And then let's just see by show of hands, how many mind people do we have? Mind is the top for you, mind people, okay? How many soul people? Love the Lord God with your soul, okay? Okay. How about strength? Love the Lord God, your strength. Uh-huh. And then heart. All right. Now, again, here's the danger. The danger is, well, I'm I'm more of a mind guy, so I'm just gonna sit this worship time out. I'm gonna wait, I'm gonna wait for the, the teaching part because I'm more I'm more of a mind guy. Maybe you think, well, I'm, I'm more of a heart girl, and so I'm gonna sing, then i I need to go, I need to go home after that. I'm pretty much done at that point. Maybe, um, maybe you, even denominations have lent, lent themselves more towards one of these four than, than the others. But the issue is we can't be just one of them. It's all an and repeatedly. Someone who is all heart is the person who is tossed to and fro and you ride waves of emotion. If you were very high in the heart category, you probably feel everything. And you feel it deeply. And you might even feel it loudly, if I know who you are. That's just who you are, right? You feel it all. And so you have really high highs and really low lows. But the issue for you is you don't have an anchor. You don't have substance for your emotions. And so what's happened in the church over the course of the past probably 50 years or so is that we've started to say that emotions are bad. Listen, the Bible doesn't say the emotions are bad. It just says, be careful where it's coming from. So if you're all heart, you're tossed to and fro. If you're all soul, it leads us to miss what's happening in each moment. So the soul, I want you to think about the soul as instinct. That's what soul is. It's instinctual. That's what the soul is. You, you, you're more reactionary. You live based that way or on, on how things seem to be. You are a visionary, which means you have a vision of how the world should be, and you are, you are instinctual to that. So it's like in the way that um, you can be told, you can be at, let's say, like a, your kids' Little League Baseball game, okay? And you can be told it's just a Little League Baseball game, and they're just eight year olds, and the umpire is a volunteer. But your instinct, is that this is game seven of the World Series. So no matter what you're told, your instinct rises to the top and you start screaming profanities at the poor little 12-year-old umpire who has no idea what he's doing. And you're making sure he knows that you know that he has no idea what he's doing. Are you with me? I love you soul people. I'm, I'm, I'm close to being one of them. I'm just saying, man, that's us, right? That's what souls. It's, it's more instinct. So you follow God based on instinct. If it feels good, do it. You have a dream for the future. What happens is that your dream of the future makes you miss out on the substance of the present. A mind person, it's about your intellect. So you love doctrine and you love truth, but the problem with the mind is that you begin to love the doctrine of God, but not the presence of God. So doctrine people love to argue. Mind people love to argue doctrine, but they aren't about to tell you how much they love Jesus or what Jesus has done for them but they'll tell you that you're wrong. Oh, they love that part. That's a mind person. The strength is the imperative. It's doing and it's action. Strength people, you are led to behavior modification or a works-based faith. And if other people aren't working as hard as you are, they must not be Christians. If they haven't signed up to teach small group and be a deacon and be an elder and cook meals on Wednesday night, and serve at crossover and work in the student ministry, they must not love Jesus like you do. Strength people, this is, again, primarily, but what you need is you you need to be drawn back into the why you do what you do. So with that in mind, where we land, I'm gonna take us through this Song of Moses. And I wanna show you something about worship, what worship actually does and actually is. Worship appeals to all four of those. Worship drives us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. But for many of us, we don't wanna sit in it long enough to let that happen to us. So good, true worship music and lyrics and songs, they are true and they provoke the heart. That's what they do. Some of us grew up in traditions where we sang songs that were true, but they were the most boring thing you've ever sung in your life. Some of us grew up in traditions where it was super emotional, but you couldn't tell me where those lyrics were found in Scripture. True, honest, heartfelt worship combines all four of these things. So this song of Moses and the shorter one of Miriam towards the end, it's going to take some work for us because we're going to have to be fully integrated. So here's another picture of of this graph. The point of discipleship is to fully integrate us into all four of these. And so if you've been a Christian for 30 plus years and you've never had your heart provoked by the love Jesus has for you, I would argue with you, you've still got some work to do. If you've been following Jesus for 30 years, you got really high highs and really low lows, but you cannot tell me what the Bible says, then you might have some work to do in your discipleship. The goal of a Christian is to be fully integrated in each of these uh, forms of worship. So, before we get into narr- into the poem in Exodus 15, I want to show you the narrative for those of us mind people who just just give us the facts. Jack, here are the facts. Exodus chapter 14, verse 27 tells us the facts of what happened. This is narrative. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. And when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Do you notice the difference? There's nothing about God's nostrils in this at all, nothing. There's no words like congealed. There's not talking about walls of water on the right and the left. This is just, these are the facts. And again, for many of us, that's all we need. The problem is, if that's all you need, I'm not sure your heart is being captivated. Poetry invokes our imagination and it evokes our emotion. Another, Another way that we like to talk about poetry, we talk about songs. There are songs for you, that evoke your imagination and they evoke your emotion. I don't care what genre of song it is. It could be the most old school country or the most old school hip hop. It does the same thing. And don't try to combine them, Florida, Georgia line. Not gonna happen. (laughs) But they both do the same thing. Song, melody, rhythm, uh, keys, all of that. It's meant to do something. And that's not... That's not a problem when used for the glory of God. It's meant to stir our emotion. It's meant to stir up our imagination. Think of songs that captivate you. They captivate you because in your mind, in your imagination, you go back to that place. You see what they're singing about. You feel what you used to feel or what that artist is feeling. That's the point of poetry or song. And what poets use is they use imagery. And I heard this quote a number, probably a year or two ago from a guy named Daryl Johnson. He talks about imagery and he says, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. This is what, Poetry does for us. This is what songs do for us. This is what this song does for us. Let's go back through Exodus 15 with this in mind. This is a poetic song describing the narrative we just read in chapter 14. God split the waters, people walked through, God put the water back over them, and now there's dead bodies on the shore. But this is how the song is written. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. They saw everything happen, and then they sang a song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength. Notice this, he's my strength and my song and has become my salvation. True worship music has a personal component to it. If you're just going to sing a song to God about other people, you're not, I don't know that we're really worshiping. This is what uh, this song is. Verse two, or, yeah, this is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Verse two tells us that the only job we have is to respond to the work of God. Look at verse three. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. Sunk gives you an idea of what's happened. Cast gives you an idea. They, he threw them, he hurled them into the sea and they sank. Verse five, the floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. That, that just, it hits a bit differently than the waters came over, than there were bodies on the shore. You can, ima- can you imagine this for the eyes of the Israelites? They saw the Egyptians struggling for oxygen, fighting to get to the top and then just seeing their bodies sink to the floor of the sea. They watched it. This is not just factual. This is imaginative and emotional. Verse six, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. I don't know how many of you have kids, but this idea of shatters, you know exactly what they're talking, especially if you have boys. You've had things in your house shattered before. What shatters means is that you cannot put it back together. That's what shatters means. Shatters mean they're broken. It means they're done for. Shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. And look at this. You send out your fury. Again, Sounds a bit different than, oh, and then the waters covered them and they died. This is the fury of God. It consumes them like stubble. Stubble is what you use to start a fire. It consumes quickly. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Listen, I've driven on I-75 just like you have. And there are times when you have kids in the car and you can't say the things you really want to say out loud. And so what happens is that hot breath comes out of your nostrils. Does that happen to you? Because you can't say it out loud. The idea here is a Jewish euphemism that if someone was long in nostril, didn't mean they had a big nose, what it meant is that they were patient, that it took a while for the wrath to come out. But if they were short in nostril, it meant that they were quick-tempered. What this is speaking of is the wrath, the anger of God, the breath from his nostrils. It's not like he's blowing out a birthday candle. This is the blast of your nostrils, the water's piled up. Out of anger, the water's piled up. The flood stood up in a heap and the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea congealed was the idea then, that they watched, they watched the muddy ground congeal, become hard ground, pavement. He turned a sea into a highway. They watched it happen before them. It congealed in the heart of the sea. So again, not on the shore, in the middle of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. You notice what, what the author, what Moses is doing in this song, what he's saying is the problem with the enemy is that they had something to offer. They were going to do it. Any worship song you sing that starts with, that has these kinds of words, probably isn't a song about God. It's a song about you. So the truth of this song is declared here. This is what the enemy thought. I'm going to overtake them. Then verse 10, but you blew with your wind. Wind and breath in the Hebrew are the same word. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Then the change. I just saw this happen. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy home, your holy abode. The peoples have heard and they tremble. What Moses recognizes is what just happened is bigger than what just happened. Now every enemy that hears of this story will tremble. They will tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Just anxiety, the pains of what might be coming for them. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling Seizes the leaders of Moab. In your mind, can you see the leaders of Moab trembling? Can you see it? This is what poetry does for us. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted. Come on, they've melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone, they're paralyzed in fear. Until your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased you will bring them in, you will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And then the concluding stanza, your Lord will reign forever and ever. Then we get a break from that song and then we get the narrative. So it's almost like, right? It's almost like this morning. So we sang a song and then Joel says something and then we sing a song again. This is what's happening. So now we get the the narrative because when the horse's Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went to the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Verse 21, and Miriam sang to them. It's a simple song, and they probably repeated it over and over and over again. I'm just saying, sometimes you repeat stuff. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And this chorus doesn't feel like much until you understand what's being said. The idea that the horse and rider were thrown into the sea takes us back to what we read last week. There was not a remnant of the enemy of Egypt left. What Miriam is singing is, I know that it is finished no longer have an enemy after me and she sings it on repeat but again if we're people who are missing the ingredient of heart or soul or mind or strength we don't get we don't get the full flavor of what worship does of what songs do for us this song covers all of them for the mind people it's true For the heart people, it conjures emotion. For the soul people, it's guttural. The words like fury and from his nostrils. And for the strength people, it says, well, then I will do these things. I will worship. I will sing. This is what this song does for us. It conjures up everything for us this morning. But here's the issue for many of us. We still don't sing and we feel like singing is just a, it's a thing we throw into a service. Throughout scripture, there are 50 different commands of God to sing to him. Commands, not suggestions. Commands to sing to him. And at no point is it, sing to me if you have a good voice. Sing to me if you can harmonize. Sing to me if you feel like it. Sing to me sing to me. These are commands and imperatives by the Lord. Eugene Peterson, who was a scholar, just brilliant, he makes this statement that Christians sing. They sing in the desert, they sing at night, they sing in the storms. Oh, how they sing. The songs of vision are the response to the statistics of evil. Any evil, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic. Pedantic meaning, I'd look this up, don't worry, I'd look it up, Uh, meaning like shallow or thin, like has no substance. They're exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. Why did Moses write a song after crossing the Red Sea? Because that's what Christians do, they sing. They worship in response and they sing. And what some of us need this morning Us mind people, we need to sing so that we feel something. You need to feel the presence of God. You need to feel the love God has for you. The things that you might know in your head, you have to know in your heart now. All of our heart people, what you might need this morning is you need to sing things that are true. You need to quit worrying less about what it sounds like and feels like and more about what you're actually singing. And I will tell you this, Joel works his tail off to make sure we're singing songs that are true. So you don't have to worry about it. We're gonna sing songs that are true. Us soul people who are more instinctual, we need these songs to root us and ground us in the present. Us strength people, we need to lay our, lay our hands down and just sit in and worship a holy God. And when do we sing? Well, we always sing. Paul and Silas sang in prison. At Jericho, they sang as a, as a march of the army. We always sing. We sing when we're happy and we sing when we're sad. We sing when it's rainy and when it's sunny. We just sing because singing is not about singing. Singing is about worship. And worship is about loving the Lord our God with our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. Found a couple of videos of prisoners in a maximum security prison worshiping. And if you think your circumstances are bad, and that's why you can't sing, I just, I want you to keep that in mind as we watch this first video. singing a song called Jireh, the goddess that provides a lyric in there that says, I will be content, whatever the circumstance, serving at least 25 to 30 years, making that statement that he is enough and he is more than enough and he will provide. Then I found this clip of them singing another song in this prison, but this song is the song Refiner. And the lyrics are asking God to refine them, to put them on trial. Can you imagine? You're in a maximum security prison and you're asking to be put on trial. So you can listen and watch this one. I wanna be tried by fire. God, take whatever you desire. Lord, here's my life. What we're gonna do now is we're gonna respond and we're gonna sing. That's what we're going to do. And it's not because it feels good. It's, not because it's, it's because it's what God has desired of us to do. And because God is good, his desires for us are good. And what's sad is that many of us are missing out on the goodness of God because we refuse to sing. We refuse to engage our minds or our hearts or our souls or our strength in worship. It's holistic when we worship, it it involves every piece of our being this morning. So I don't know where you find yourself today. And you might be wanting me to give you more things to go out and to do and five steps to a healthier marriage for you. This is where it begins. Worship is where it begins. Singing is where it begins. Is he worthy of your praise? Is he holy? He is. Then we sing. Then we sing. For those of us who have thought, well, you don't really have to sing, that's fine. I just think you're missing an ingredient in the recipe of the goodness of God. And he's good enough and strong enough to command us to sing, that maybe we should just give it a shot today. So listen to the lyrics. Sing the lyrics that are true. Let them ignite your imagination and your emotion. Let them stir your affections and your instincts. And if you feel so compelled, use your body to worship him in your strength today. I'm gonna pray for us and we're just gonna stand and we're gonna finish just by worshiping this morning. God, you are holy and you are set apart. You are unlike any other God there is. You are higher than and stronger than and more mighty than. You are more compassionate than and more gracious than anything else in the world. And God, there's something about what you've given us through music that ignites this whole being of ourselves, God. And I just, I ask that today, God, you help us to worship you like you called us to. True believers will worship you in spirit and in truth. With all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So God, make us a people, even today. Push us today to commune with you in your presence. In Jesus' name.